If you've been here the last three weeks, you know that we have been looking at the passages in the Gospels where Jesus has an actual back and forth with somebody, an actual dialogue. And we've been asking what we can learn from those things. And this week, we're looking at Jesus' conversation with someone who doesn't receive a name. Uh, We just know him by three superficial qualities. He's rich, he's young, and according to the Gospel of Luke, he is uh, someone with political authority. He's called a ruler. So he's a rich, young ruler. And I like to think that if there had been supermarket tabloids in those days, this is the kind of guy that the paparazzi would want a picture of. You know, they would, they would hunt him down, and, and then there would be pictures of him, and it would be like, here he is looking good, here he is riding his camel, here he is going to worship at the temple. I like to think if there were political polls during those days, uh, that, that he would be a guy who had a high approval rating, because uh, he's young, rich, uh, he's a cool guy. But whether any of that is true or not, what we do know for sure is that this guy had a lot going for him by worldly standards. And maybe because he had a lot going for him, this rich young ruler wanted his life to continue forever, right? But there's a problem, which is life, as we know it, doesn't go on for forever. And so he comes to Jesus looking for a solution. Uh, That's where our passage starts. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, turn to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, Do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. All right. Now, if we're not careful, we can read the essence of this conversation as something like this. Rich man says to Jesus, how can I be saved? And then Jesus says, well, you need to follow the commands. You need to be good. You need to do all the right things. So let's check and see how you're doing. Uh, Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. And uh, the rich man listens to this list, and he goes, oh, yeah, yep, yep, I do that, I do that, I I don't do that. And he's going through the list, and he thinks that things are going pretty well, and then Jesus adds this one uh, rule that he's not aware of, which is get rid of all your stuff and follow me. And the man thinks, oh, I've never heard of that one. It's not one of the ten. I can't do that. And then he goes away sad. Now, if we see the essence of the conversation that way, then what we can assume is that the moral of the story is this. If you're going to follow Jesus, 
you've got to give up all your stuff. Unless you do that, you can't inherit eternal life. But there's a problem with that conclusion, uh, which is this. Jesus doesn't tell everyone to give away all their stuff. And generally speaking, this is the case, but just to give you guys two clear examples, in case you feel like you need that, uh, one is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. If you're familiar with that, uh, Zacchaeus tells Jesus, today I'm going to give away half of what I own to the poor. And Jesus' response to that is, wow, salvationists come to this house today. His response is not only half. <laughs> you need to give away all of it. If you're really going to be, that's what I told the rich young ruler. So this is a universal principle here. Zacchaeus, you've got to give away all of it, not just half. He doesn't say that. Okay, so that's one example. And then another is Mary and, and, Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus, the one that Jesus raises from the dead. And uh, Mary and Martha, they are people who have possessions. They are followers of Jesus, but they also clearly have possessions because they have a home and they have Jesus over to the home and they are hospitable to him and they entertain him in the home. And at no point does Jesus say, Martha, how can you follow me if you have all these possessions and all these kitchen items? You know that my followers can't go to Bed Bath & Beyond. He doesn't say anything like that. So we have to be careful not to see Jesus as teaching a universal principle here. Uh, I guess I lost a slide. One of my slides was supposed to cross that top moral out. So just in case any of you wrote it down, cross it out, okay? Because I don't want anyone to be confused. <clears throat> so if that's not what Jesus is teaching, how do we understand what he's saying? Well, I think the key is to look at the way the conversation starts. Um, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I realize it sounds a little bit like Jesus is saying, I'm not God, so don't call me good, which is concerning, of course, right, because we worship Jesus as God. Uh, but Jesus isn't saying anything about his identity here. I want to be very clear about that. That's not the point of what he says here. What he's doing is he's trying to get the man to realize that no one is good enough to inherit eternal life. No one is good enough to inherit eternal life. God alone is good. See, because the man starts the conversation by saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, notice those words, what must I do? In other words, what good things do I have to accomplish in order to be good enough to inherit eternal life? That's his question. And so we need to understand Jesus' response in light of that question. And what his response does is he rejects the question itself, right? Because the question rests on a false premise. And the false premise is that the man thinks it is possible to be good enough to inherit eternal life. He thinks it's possible to really be good. And so Jesus says, no one is good except God, which is a way of saying no one is good enough to inherit eternal life. See, Jesus is rejecting the question. And when we look at the rest of the conversation through this lens, it has a very different character. Because when Jesus starts listing the commandments, we realize he's not presenting them as a checklist, right, for the, for the rich young ruler to go, oh yeah, I do that, I do that. What he's doing is providing proof that no one is good enough. 
Because if the rich young ruler is really honest, he hasn't followed always those, all those commands perfectly, and nobody does. You see, that's the only, re, that's the only way to make sense of the prog progression between verse 18 and verse 19. Verse 18, Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. And then in verse 19, he starts listing the commandments, which are the good things required by the law. So Jesus isn't saying, here's your to-do list for salvation. He's saying, here's the proof. Here's the proof that no one is good enough. But the rich young ruler is a little too proud to realize that that's what Jesus is doing. And so instead of agreeing with Jesus and saying, yeah, I'm not good enough. No one's good enough. No one's good enough except God alone. Instead of doing that, he declares his goodness, right? He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, it's interesting how Jesus responds to this because there's a couple different things he could have done. He could have said, oh, come on, buddy. Okay, maybe you've never murdered and maybe you haven't committed adultery in the technical sense, but, I mean, surely you've borne false witness, right? Surely you've at least told a little white lie a few times, right? And, I mean, honoring your father and mother, I mean, don't tell me you didn't sass them a little bit, right? You haven't followed these perfectly. And something else Jesus could have done to correct them is to use some of his material from the Sermon on the Mount, right? He could have said, oh, you say you've never committed adultery. Well, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart, right? Or, oh, you, you say you never murdered. Well, you know what? I say that even if you're angry at your brother, that's a big problem. That's a sin. And Jesus could have said these things to correct him. But he chooses to handle the conversation in a different way, right? Instead of quibbling with him over whether or not he's really followed these commands, instead of getting into some kind of debate with him about that, he says something that reveals what is most likely to keep him from inheriting eternal life. Okay, Jesus says something to reveal where his heart really is. But before, we do, before he does that, we're given this interesting little detail. It almost seems like it's not appropriate that it's wedged in here. Uh, we're told that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, if you haven't been following the logic of the conversation that I have just presented, you might assume that the reason Jesus feels this love for him is because he's just told him that, I've been a good boy. Right? I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. And then he thinks, oh, that's beautiful, right? But, of course, we know that's not what's going on here because what this man just did was actually disagree with Jesus. Jesus just said, no one's good except God alone, and then this guy just said, I'm good. So he just disagreed. And yet, Jesus' response to his pride and delusion is to look at him with love, right? I like to think he looks at him and he thinks, oh, Bless his heart. <laughs> this poor boy is out of touch with reality. <laughs> but I love him anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm still fond of him. That should be comforting to us. Because it shows that even if we fail to understand the, the gospel, to understand that we really can't be good enough on our own strength, even then, God still loves us. He's still fond of us. Still fond of us. And he also loves us enough to try and pull us out of our delusion. Okay, 
And that's what Jesus does here. Okay? He skips over arguing about whether or not this guy has really kept all the commandments, and he says something to cut through the delusion, to break through it. And what he says is, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, as I already said, this can't mean that the only people who inherit the kingdom are those who have given away all their possessions. That doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. What Jesus is doing here is trying to help this man to realize that his treasure is not in heaven. Notice he tells uh, the man that if he sells everything that he has and gives it to the poor, then he will have treasure in heaven, which assumes that right now his treasure is not in heaven, right? But if he does this, then his treasure will be in heaven. Now, what does that mean, that his treasure is not in heaven? Uh, when most of us hear that phrase, we probably imagine that somewhere up in heaven there's this big treasure chest. And whenever we give something away on earth, it's like the value of that gets deposited in the treasure chest, right? And not only that, but it collects interest. And then when we die, we go and we get our heavenly treasure chest. Don't tell me you haven't thought that, right? Something like that. Now, there's some validity, a little bit of validity, to thinking that way about it. But I think Jesus wants, to think, wants us to think of treasure in heaven a little bit differently than that. Okay, we have to remember that our treasure is whatever is most important to us. Okay, whatever we treasure is what we value. Uh, you might say that your treasure is whatever gives your life meaning. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. And that's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, what you treasure is what you really care about. It's what really matters. It's the thing that you can't imagine living without. Because if it was taken from you, your heart would be utterly, irreparably broken. That's what your treasure is. So that means to have treasure in heaven is to value heavenly things. It's, it's to, to, to think in such a way where God and his will and his kingdom are the, the one thing that you can never have taken from you without your heart being irreparably broken. That's what it means to have treasure in heaven. And Jesus knows that this man's treasure isn't really in God and his kingdom. This man's treasure is not in heaven. It's actually in his wealth. It's in his possessions. That's what gives him his sense of identity. That's what gives him his sense of purpose. That's what, get, what gets him out of bed in the morning. Right? His identity is, I'm a rich man. Not just a man, but a rich man. And when Jesus tells him that he has to choose between following him and wealth, that is the choice that reveals where his treasure really is. It's a choice that brings his true character to the surface. It's a choice that actually makes it clear that he isn't really good. Or at least not good enough to deserve eternal life. And let me reiterate, just to be clear, because I think this is so important. I think this is the third time I've said this. The point here is not that it is impossible to love Jesus and possess worldly things. The point here is not that it's impossible to love Jesus and have wealth. Uh, the point is not that all followers of Jesus have to give away all their stuff. The point is that this man 
loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus. And when he was forced to choose between wealth or Jesus, he chose wealth. He showed, that is where my treasure is. Now, why would he do that? Why would this man value wealth more than Jesus? And even eternal life. Why? The reason is because whether this man realizes it or not, he has a false belief. And that false belief is this. I need wealth in order for life to be worthwhile. I need it in order for life to be worthwhile. You might even say that for this man, his wealth is his salvation. Because for this man, his wealth is what saves him from a meaningless existence. Uh, It's what saves him from feelings of insecurity. It's what saves him from feelings of powerlessness. It's what saves him from feelings of inadequacy and feelings of shame. When I use that word, salvation, that religious word, salvation, I don't want you to just think about being saved from from dying or saved from hell or something like that. I mean, that's part of it, right? But I want you to think of it in even more practical terms than that. When you hear salvation, think saved from meaningless, insecurity, powerlessness, inadequacy, shame. And what I want us to recognize this morning is that we all, Okay, just like the rich young ruler, have a tendency to try and find salvation in things other than God. We try to find these things, save ourselves from these things, in things other than God. So wealth, of course, is one of the most common ways, uh, things that we look to, right? But there's, there's tons of other possibilities that we might try to find salvation in. We might try to find it in romance, right? We might try to find it in sports, or in academic success, or in our physical appearance, uh, or in alcohol, or drugs. And one common place that we look to for salvation uh, is in the approval of others. That's uh, one of the reasons why many of us are addicted to social media, you know, to things like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It's because of those stupid like buttons, right? Because never before in history has it been so easy to seek the approval of others and then gauge that approval in such a concrete way. Because right? all day you can post stuff and then people can click a button that then suggests to you that they think that you're smart or beautiful or funny. And every time they click that button and you see it, you get a little Rush of dopamine to your brain that says, ooh, that feels good. I like that. Give me more of that. Save me from my sense of shame and insecurity and inadequacy and powerlessness. You know, more, more, more. And people get addicted to it. You know, I really believe that a lot of people today, if Jesus stood before them and said, one thing you lack, give up your Twitter account, they would go away sad just like this guy. Why? Right? Because for them, the sense of approval and importance that they get from having lots of followers and getting lots of likes or, or hearts, whatever it is on Twitter, um, that has become their salvation. That's just too important. But here is the bad news. The bad news is that none of these things that we look to for salvation can actually deliver a 
us. They, they can't actually give us what we're looking for. They can't save us from that list of things that I put up earlier. Uh, one of my favorite reminders of this is a quote from a guy named David Foster Wallace. Uh, I actually used the same quote in a sermon about a year and a half ago, but I figure it's too good to only use once. A lot of you probably weren't here, and I shouldn't flatter myself by thinking all of you remember everything I say. So uh, this, this, this guy, David Foster Wallace, has anyone heard of him? Okay. David Foster Wallace is a, uh, a writer, or he was a writer. Um, he, he's a, a professor. And as far as I know, he is not a Christian. Um, and sadly, he uh, committed suicide about three years after he spoke these words. Uh, he, uh, it was in 2008. This quote is from 2005. But uh, he said in a, an address that he gave at a, uh, a college commencement, he said, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. See, Wallace, even though he's writing without any kind of religious agenda, is able to see that we all have our treasure somewhere. And he's able to see that any time we put our treasure in something other than God, we set ourselves up for disappointment. Because none of those things can actually save us. None of those things can actually save us from our feelings of meaningless and insecurity and inadequacy and powerlessness. They might give us some relief for a little while, but eventually they disappoint. What he's saying is that when our treasure isn't in heaven, then our treasure destroys us. One of the great literary metaphors of this idea is the character Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Gollum's treasure is in the one ring, right? Uh, he calls it his precious. And for Gollum, his joy, his peace, his sense of uh, adequacy and power, all of that is tied to the ring. In his mind, that ring is his salvation. And everything he does is motivated by either a desire to possess the ring or to keep it. But of course, the ring doesn't give him salvation, right? Instead, his obsession with it transforms him uh, from, from a hobbit, you might not know that, the golem was a hobbit, into something that's kind of like a cross between a hobbit and a frog, right? He, he just, he's creepy, he's weird. Um, and, 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 and he just gets more and more gross looking and he, he becomes more and more like a child emotionally, right? even though he's over 500 years old. 
And what Tolkien is trying to remind us of through Gollum is the same thing that David Foster Wallace is trying to say through that quote, which is that when we look for salvation in the wrong places, it destroys us. It eats us alive. Now, the rich young ruler, he didn't realize it, but he was looking for salvation in his wealth. Right? And as long as he was looking there, he was looking in a place where it could not be found. And Jesus tried to free him from that sad state by asking him to just let his wealth go, right? Let it go. But that was like asking Gollum to give up the ring, to give up his precious, and he couldn't do it. So, what is the application for us here? Well, I have two things. Uh, first thing, we need to turn from our false saviors and recognize that God alone can save us. Turn from our false saviors and recognize God alone can save us. Uh, we need to realize that it's only God that can do it, right? Not our wealth, not our romantic relationships, not our careers, physical beauty, others' approval, none of that stuff. We need to realize that only the perfect love of God, only the perfect love of God can save us from the meaninglessness, the insecurity, the powerlessness, the inadequacy, and the shame that haunts our souls. Only that can do it. But there's something else that we need to realize, too. And, uh, you know, I can tell us to, to turn from our false saviors, and I have, but you know what? You're not going to be able to do that perfectly, <laughs> no matter how hard you try. If you could do it perfectly, then that would mean that you love God perfectly, which means that you'd be able to inherit eternal life on your own strength, and you can't do that. Uh, you know, we might have a few good days where we're finding our salvation, our identity, our security in God and God alone, but we're always going to feel pulled and drawn towards trying to find our salvation in this stuff that can't deliver. It's just part of the human condition right now. And uh, even if we do well for a little while, eventually we find ourselves clinging to the ring again, saying, my precious, and wondering, how did I get back here? But... There's good news. Uh, and the good news is this. The rich young ruler's story ends on a hopeful note. Uh, if we read a little further, this is what happens. So after the rich young ruler walks away sad, uh, Jesus turns around and he says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're wondering, what, what's the camel through the eye of a needle thing? Uh, well, that is an expression that is meant to express impossibility. Okay? Uh, you know how small an eye of a needle is, right? Like, it's talking about a literal eye of a, eye of a needle. And you can't push a camel through an eye of a needle, right? It's like saying, uh, it would be easier to go to the moon in a hot air balloon. Can't do it. This is a way of saying this is an impossible thing. Jesus is saying it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because rich people tend to trust their wealth for their salvation. That's why. Because they become like Gollum. But listen to the hopeful ending here. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? 
See, the disciples get it. They realize this doesn't just apply to rich people. This applies to everyone. Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. All things are possible with God, even salvation for rich people. So here's the second application. We should be encouraged because even if we struggle with turning from our false saviors, there's still hope for us. In our human strength alone, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And the reason that human salvation is possible, even salvation for rich people, is because the only one who is truly good, the only one who is truly good, Jesus Christ, paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross. And when we cling to that truth, uh, when we look to that for salvation, it gives us life. Everything else that we cling to for salvation is like Gollum in the ring. It doesn't give, give us life. It robs us of that life. It takes it away. But when we cling to the gospel, we have life now and eternally. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for the reminder that our salvation is not dependent on something that we, we do. We thank you, Lord, that all we really need to do is, is to trust, to put our trust and our treasure in you. And God, we acknowledge that that is hard. We acknowledge that Every day we're drawn to trust in other things for our salvation, to trust in other things to deliver us from meaninglessness and powerlessness and shame. Uh, but God, we, we, we acknowledge that only your perfect love can save us from those things. And Lord, we, we want to trust in you for them, for, for deliverance, God, both now and forever. And so Lord, we, we are encouraged by the grace uh, that you d demonstrate in this passage by the reminder that all things are possible with you. We ask for that deliverance and we trust in you for it. Help us not to be like Gollum. In Jesus' name, amen.